Good morning. And I want to say good morning to those on our online campus as well. I got, I got to say, this is, this is weird. It's just weird. But at the same time, it's kind of cool, too. So it's weird and cool. I don't know how that works, but it works together, right? First in-person gathering since mid-March. Thank you for your patience with us. Uh, we could have maybe gone sooner. I don't know. Uh, we were glad to be good citizens. And I just want to say a, a big thank you to our staff who have built all these new multiple teams. With all the protocols and everything to, to get this all kind of wired, I think they've done such an amazing job. I'm, I'm so pleased with, I hope it doesn't have to last much longer, but, um, but for now, and may, a lot of things will change for good from now on, right? So um, let's see, we're about, I think this is eight or nine weeks into this series on Ephesians, but it's been strange for me to cover these, these big, long sections. I wish we could take a few months to go through Ephesians, and I just want to remind you that we chose to go through the book of Ephesians because we believe that it, it felt like it speaks to a lot of the needs that we have right now in our country and also in the church. I, I believe that God didn't start the COVID virus, but God is using the COVID virus uh, to speak to us, maybe as individuals, as families, and as the church, Big C Church, and of course our church together. So uh, I, I just want you to know that we're, this, is, this is intentional and purposeful that we're doing this. So I want to start, I have a couple questions for you. What are you good at? And because we actually like have people in here, I'd love to hear from some of you. Somebody tell me, what, what, what are you good at? Let me see, is there a hand? It's not boasting, you can just, there, there's some things that we're good at. What are you good at? You're good at drawing, awesome, okay. Anybody else, what are you good at? Techn I, we, can we meet afterwards? I'm, I'm really, <laughs> I'm, st I'm struggling. I'm trying to keep up. Anybody else, one more, what are you good at? Okay, we have, we have, we have jobs for you. We're, we love you. Okay, well, so, so here's, here's what we're thinking about in this. What are you good at? And think for a moment here, how did you get good at what you're good at? How did you get good at what you're good at? Much of what we are good at today is the result of imitating other people. If you've learned another language, it begins with repetitious uh, imitation. That and uh, verb tenses, but that's repetition too. I've taken up a couple of new sports in the last uh, few years, and for each one, I, I continue to watch YouTube videos. Thank God for YouTube videos, whatever we're doing. There's a video about that somewhere, but, uh, but I watch YouTube videos for these sports and, and imitate what, what, whatever it is, the, the current, uh, correct posture, the stroke, the timing. All of that is through imitation. And the focus of our passage today is imitation. That's what we're going to be looking at. Just a quick review. The two major themes, as far as I'm concerned, in the book of Ephesians is union. Our union with Christ, one of the most important doctrines of the New Testament. And then our unity as saints. So union 
and unity are the two big picture themes of the book of Ephesians. And the first three chapters, what happens there is it, 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 we see what, what happens to us when we receive Christ by faith, and then what we become in Christ. That goes back to that doctrine of uh, union with Christ. And then Paul employs three metaphors. It's not the only three, but at the end of chapter 2, he employs three metaphors. He, call, he talks about, about us being fellow citizens, and that would take us back to the kingdom of God, the the, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the kingdom of God, but the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that manifesto of Jesus about the present reality of the kingdom of God. We're fellow citizens of this thing called the kingdom of God. And then in verse 19 of chapter 2, he talks about God's household. So we're, we're a new family of people. We're part of God's household. And then if you combine chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, Paul speaks about us becoming a holy temple. And I don't know if you ever noticed, but I've, I don't think I have ever referred to this building as the church. I, when, I, when I talk about this building, I, th I think I'm pretty sure 99% of the time I would say the church building. And sometimes maybe you've heard me say what this really is, is a sheep shed. That's what this is, sheep shed. But we are the church, and I don't want us to ever forget that. That's, it's us. We've become the church. The presence of God dwells in us as the church. But now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where we are now in chapter 5, Paul moves on to tell us what it means to live the Christian life, how we are to live now as followers of Jesus. And some pretty heavy stuff. I don't know if you noticed when, when that was being read, but there's some heavy things in the imperative section. And today, I'd like us to look at four words in the text and the context of what was just read to us that will help us to further understand what Paul is teaching about and how we are to live in the light of gospel grace. And so here are those four words. Imitators, and I notice we'll come back to that, but it's plural. Idolater, wrath. We don't like to talk about wrath. I don't anyway. Uh, but we need to, and then walk. Those are the four words. So we'll go back, we'll look at those one at a time, and then I forgot to mention, but you probably already heard that we're, we're going to move right into communion, and we have these. If you didn't get one, you can get one when it's time. But for those of us that are former Catholics, this will be reminiscent of the, or current Catholics will be reminiscent of the good old days. So anyway, well, look at those one at a time. First one is imitators. It's interesting that the Greek word uh, for imitate is the same word we get our word, our English word mime from. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And to me, that means at least three, three things. First of all, the therefore in the verse is a reference to all that's previously gone on before that, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. But it's also a very clear reference to the imperatives that were, were listed in the previous chapter, 4 verses 25 to 32. Jerry covered those last week. What Paul is saying is that the way to be successful at living the Christian life is to imitate God. Easier said than done, right? How do we imitate God? What can we learn about that? Well, we quietly watch. We read up. We pray, 
and we practice. Think about learning how to ski, or think about learning how to surf, or think about learning how to ride a bike. When we first begin, we're just not very good at these things that we're trying to learn. But through imitation and practice, and maybe reading up like I do on some of the sports that I engage in, reading up on those so that we're better prepared to engage. And then I thought of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 2. He says this, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then I, I get this sense of relief. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of my faith. What does that mean to me? It means that he's going to do all the heavy lifting. So it's not just a matter of my willpower trying to get it together and live and walk the Christian life, but, but he founds my faith. He calls me to him. No one comes to the Father except the Holy Spirit draws them. And that he also will perfect our faith. One of my favorite words about the Christian life is surrender. It's kind of a continuous surrender of ourselves to the purpose of God. Yeah. Just, just in case you missed it. It's not our willpower that perfects our faith the presence and the power of God. The Holy Spirit will do in us and through us what we cannot do on our own. That's so important to understand that aspect of the gospel. It's not us. It's the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. The second thing we notice about becoming imitators is that, as I mentioned, it's plural. We are called to do this thing together, the Christian life together. That's why church services that's why community groups and care groups are so important that we, we come together, that we engage with God together because we're, we're called to do this together. And thirdly, regarding imitating God, we are to imitate God. And that word as that's in there is so important. We are to imitate as beloved children. Paul is saying that we are to have and pursue this growing understanding of our newfound status as beloved children called into God's household to, to, to imitate God based on who we now are as beloved children. Not adults, but children. There's that. We're growing. And that we're part of this family. It's essential to understanding the imperatives in all of chapters 4 through 6. So that takes us to number 2, idolater. That's in verse 5. John Calvin famously wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. So it's pretty scary when Paul says in verse 5 of our text for today that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh-oh. So it says if you are that, you know, Calvin says the human heart is an idol factory, and then Paul says if, if, if you are an idolatry, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. And how do we, how do we connect the dots there? How do, we, how do we reconcile that what we are is what we're not supposed to be? 
That's what comes to my mind. I think the best way to get past this, to be condemned as an idolater, as Paul's talking about there, is to admit that we are idolaters. That's how we get past the speed bump of idolatry. It's like admitting that we have a drinking problem. We can't really deal with our problems unless we admit that we have them. It's like admitting that we have an anger problem. And then to address another current cultural issue, I think the same needs to be said for the issue of racism. Paul's talking about racism in this context. There's multiple ethnicities in Ephesus coming together to form a church. I think if we're honest, we would say that every culture has its own racist tendencies. That's part of what Paul's talking about here. Multiple ethnicities can become one local church. And I was thinking about this, and uh, you know what I'd like to hear a politician say? And I haven't heard this on anybody. I haven't heard anybody say this, but this is what I'd like to hear a politician say. I'd like to hear a politician get up and say, I'm a racist. I grew up, well, this is what I'd like to hear a white politician say. I'm a racist. I grew up unaware of my white privilege. I grew up unaware of institutional racism. And I've come to see, and I've come to hate my lack of awareness here. And I have come to see and hate my racist tendencies. I would love to hear people own that. We must admit our idolatry in order to get past them. In contemporary North, North America, idols are just everywhere. We've got, you know, music idols, we've got sports idols, fashion idols, and then this weird new thing called culture idols, people that are famous for being famous. I don't really understand how that all works. We have a television show, right? To make our own idol, American Idol. I've gotten sucked in a few times, I gotta admit. Idolatry quietly and subtly slips into our lives when we allow good things to become ultimate things. And I think, if I had to say, what's, what's the biggest idol in America right now? And my thought is it's independence, that there's this independence that kind of keeps us at a distance ultimately. But then after that, there's the money, sex, and power thing. So those are, those are like the big four. From my perspective, I don't have to be right about that, from my perspective of, of things that, if we're not careful, will capture us and suck us into idolatry. Here's a list of some of the idols that Paul is referring to in Ephesians 5, 3, and 5 that were read. Immorality is used twice in verse 3 and 5. The Greek word there is pornea. Enough said. Another one is impurity, used twice in verses 3 and 5 as well, refers to a lustful, wasteful, reckless life, seeking to get what's in it for me, not to give. It's, this is the opposite of gospel love. Another, one, another two, greed and covetousness, two forms of the same Greek word in verses 3 and 5 again, desirous of having more and more and more and more and more. And then filthiness, obscenity, indecency, baseness, dishonor. Another one in verse 4, foolish talk. Same Greek word as we get the word moron from. I say that word more often than I like to admit. 
uh, especially when I'm driving. So uh, that was, that was, I don't know if it was new to me, but it was newly convicting to me to, read, to find that out. And then crew joking. This is an interesting one. Paul is, Paul is speaking to the Greeks in the congregation when he uses this crew joking word. The word has this interesting background. Uh, the word comes from a Greek word for wittiness, referring to pleasantness in conversation. And this is one of Aristotle's virtues. He spoke of this, what he called a golden mean between boorishness and buffoonery. And, and, and later on, this word came to signify jokes that were obscene or coarse. So it's been said that all idolatry, well, let me go back. It's been said that all sin is idolatry. Because in that moment, we're worshiping something or someone other than Christ. So the best way to get past our tendency toward idolatry is honesty, confession, and repentance. Knowing that our heart is basically an idol factory, if there's a continual sense of honesty, confession, and repentance, I think we have a chance to grow and not be condemned. Number three is wrath. There may be no theological topic that is more controversial in our Western contemporary culture than divine wrath. Humanity is, for the most part, eager to acknowledge the existence of God, yet most people really, really struggle with the idea of God being wrathful. God's wrath, though, is a consistent theme in the Bible. It's a defining characteristic of God, and the gospel truly suffers when we fail to engage and to communicate God's wrath. We misunderstand the term wrath because we think of someone who is losing their temper, right? Or someone who is cruel. Or someone who can't control their emotions. When we hear wrath, that's what we tend to think about. And the Greek word is orgy, similar to our English word ogre. And ogre in our English language means monster or tyrant. And in this letter, Paul uses the word orgy three times in chapter 2, verse 3, 431, and chapter 5, verse 6. I think we must keep at least three things in mind regarding God's wrath. Number one, God's wrath is judicial. It, it's, it's legal and supremely sensible at all times. Number two, God's wrath in the Bible is something that people choose for themselves. Two passages that help us to understand that, Romans 1.20, many of you are familiar with that passage. Paul's, Paul writes in Romans, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. What Paul is telling the Romans is, because of the beauty and the wonder of creation, it tells us about God, and ultimately we are without excuse. And then another, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Very similar to Paul's writing there. 
And then number three, I don't hear this talked about very often, but there's an element of longing in God's wrath. It's not just anger. There's, there's longing in God's wrath. God is longing for us to make better decisions, make better choices. Think about your kids. When they do something stupid, there might be some wrath, right? Some anger. Could it happen? Maybe. But, but there's also a longing, isn't there? Or, or sometimes it's our spouse that might do a dumb thing. I'm sure nobody here uh, has ever done that. But there's some anger when we do dumb things. But isn't there also this longing? There, there, you, you can... You, you can do better. We've taught you better. Or, or you know, why? Why? And so there's, there's a, I want you to catch that. There's a longing in God's wrath that's there. The Bible insists uh, that God is a God of both love and wrath. Not only do we, not only do love and wrath not conflict with one another, but they actually establish one another. If we don't see and believe in, in wrath and hell, it trivializes what God has done on our behalf. When we begin to see and understand God's wrath and then see Jesus interacting and eating with some exceedingly vile sinners, then the gospel just becomes truly amazing. This God of wrath sitting down with abject sinners and eating and engaging with them. It brings the gospel to a whole different place in our lives. People push back on this. Most people consider it's a big struggle in our culture today. Most people consider other people to be good people. He's a good person. He's a good, I say that a lot too. That, oh, that guy's a great guy. She's awesome. And, and that is all true but sometimes it trivializes the wrath of God. We acknowledge that, yes, yeah, some people deserve God's wrath. Think of the great tyrants or, or mass murderers. We go there and think, well, yeah, they deserve God's wrath, but most of the rest of us are just good people. I want to share this illustration. Hang in there with me on this. Imagine a widow who has only one child. She raises him, and she teaches him to always tell the truth always work hard, always care for the poor, to be honest, industrious, and charitable. And he listens to her. And then when it comes of age, she scrapes together all of her meager savings and all the income that she can, and she puts him through college. And he graduates. Then consider this. After he graduates, he never speaks to her again. He might send a Christmas card, but, but he, he doesn't call her on the phone. He doesn't answer any of her letters. He doesn't talk to her at all. But he's good. He always tells the truth. He works hard, and he cares for the poor. He says, well, I'm, I'm doing what she told me to do. Isn't that good enough? What would you say to him?
I don't know what you say. I'd say, no way. That's not good enough. To live a good life and then to ignore the person to whom you owe everything is not good enough. Now, the average good person in our culture would probably say something like this. Well, I'm not particularly religious, but I try to live a good life. Isn't that what's really important? And the answer to that question, of course, is no. It's not. It's commendable, but it doesn't honor the person to whom we owe everything. Jesus Christ. Brings us to number four, walk. Verses 1, 8, and 15 chapter 5. As I hope you've noticed through these 21, 20 verses, the word walk is used three different times, provides some fairly straightforward imperatives for us. Verse 1, walk in Christ's love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This invites us to continually love others in the same way that Jesus Christ has loved us. That's difficult to do in this current political discord season, isn't it? To love others, to practically and continuously love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. Sounds impossible. I had a mentor once, and this is kind of corny. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but when I would say something like impossible, he would say, you put a capital H on the word impossible, and it becomes what? Impossible. That's kind of cheesy. It is. I admit it. I admit it. But it really helps me. It's not impossible. It's him possible. It means that we're, we're to love others in the same way. There's also an indication in this verse that sometimes it's a sacrifice. In other words, sometimes it's really, really hard to love others, whether it's your spouse, a kid, um, or the neighbor, or the coworker, or that person on Facebook that just drives you bananas. It's hard to be nice. Verse 8, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. When I think of light, I think of two things. One, we're we're more like the moon than we are the sun, right? We don't have light. We'll never have our own light. We are to reflect the light of God. Fairly straightforward. And then secondly, to be children of light means that we are to be honest and transparent. We are committed to what is true, what is real. That's what it means to reflect God's light. And then in verse 15, walk as wise people. And the text gives us three ways to walk in wisdom. Making the best use of time is a way to walk in wisdom. Verse 16. Another translation uses the the term redeeming the time. The Greek word here, best use of time, indicates a ransom, paying a ransom. And it makes me think of our culture, our our world system that is continually seeking to kidnap our time, in in essence, right? To to get us stuck and over here, whether it's Netflix or 
Uh, in my case, it's YouTube. Sometimes I get stuck there. I like to watch little clips of news and all. Anyway, I get, I get kidnapped. And we are to pay a ransom to redeem our time. The second one in verse 17, to understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is a big, huge question for most believers, right? What is God's will for my life? We're, we seem to be always or constantly asking that question. But I want you to know here, and this might not be the answer that you're looking for, but he's given us his will in these chapters here. First of all, it's God's will for you to do three things. Walk in God's love. He's already said that. Walk in God's light and walk in God's wisdom. That's God's will for your life, and that's God's will for my life. Walk in God's love. Love others the way he's loved us. Walk in God's light. Honestly reflect who, the, the real you. This is me. This is who I am. Not TMI, but just honest. And walk in God's wisdom. I'm, I'm so thrilled that Scripture, specifically in the book of Hebrews, tells us that discern, both discernment and wisdom are ours for the asking. If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask. That's awesome. And a final imperative is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what it's not saying, right, is, is don't drink, because Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine. So we'll leave that out. But, but here's the way that I heard this years and years, decades ago, still makes a lot of sense to me. When we get drunk or loaded or whatever, we're giving control of ourselves over to an outside agent, right? Whether it's weed or whether it's alcohol or any other drug, right? We're giving control of ourselves over to an outside agent. And so it's the same idea as being filled with the Holy Spirit, giving control of ourselves over to an outside agent, the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's also interesting to note that the verb occurs in, present in the present continuous tense, which indicates the command is for us to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit continually and regularly be filled with, with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-time thing or a second dose or baptism. It's continuous the rest of our lives. Why? I've, I shared this a few weeks ago. Maybe you'll remember. Why do we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit? Anybody remember? Because we leak. That's, that's a good joke. Come on. We leak. It's true. We get filled, and then all of our woundedness and everything else, the, the, the things of the Spirit just leak out, and then we need to be filled again. So we need to be filled regularly and continuously with the Holy Spirit. Okay. We're going to move towards communion. Here's how we can sum up the sermon. We imitate God in that we love others in the same way that God has loved us and been merciful to us. If you had to reduce it to one sentence, that's what it would be. We are to love others 
imitate God, love others in the same way that God has loved us and been merciful to us. If you're watching or listening online or here today, what I hope is, is that you've heard that the Christian life is, is not about living a good life, is it? It's not about willfulness, getting it together. It's about admitting that we can't get it together. It's about honoring the one person to whom we owe everything. His name is Jesus. If you've not trusted in the person of Jesus, some people go to church their whole lives, right? And, 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 and the dots don't get connected. In fact, church can become an idol, can it? Religion can become an idol for us. And then when we begin to see it's not about what we do or don't do, it's about what Christ has done. So what a good time, what a good moment to put your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has already accomplished on our behalf.